is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group, the global PR, content and business development specialist that builds a reputation and growth for companies in media, marketing, retail and technology. I'm Martin Lote, founder of Propeller and curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, we invite a business leader with something to say into our kennel for a chat. We ask them to dig up something a bit tasty for us to chew on. My guest today is Mandy Merrin, a leading advisor to marketing, advertising and production companies on their corporate sales, takeovers, fundraising and employees' incentives. Speak to an agency owner looking to buy or sell up or to those involved in M&A professionally and chances are Mandy's name will come up sooner or later. She's so well regarded, in fact, in the advertising scene that she's the only practising accountant to be recognised in Campaign Magazine's A-list. She spent over 30 years with the same firm, what is now known as Moore Kingston Smith, ending up as a partner and chair of their governance board and a director of its corporate finance arm. But now she's organising her own exit of sorts, and recently stepped down from running the Marcom show full-time to adopt a more part-time consultative role and spend more time on hobbies such as skiing, riding, cycling and golf. Mandy, welcome to the Dog and Bone podcast. Thanks very much, Martin. I'm delighted to be here. So have you fully retired after an illustrious career or are you keeping your hand in in some way? I'm keeping my hand in in some way. Um, I have to say that having done what I've really loved for 30 years, it's a little bit hard to give it up totally. Um, So I'm still consulting with clients for more Kingston Smith and um, combining that with doing a bit of bit of fun stuff as well. The the fun stuff I mentioned in the intro or have you got some other pursuits and uh, activities? Um, No, fun stuff that mentioned in the intro. Basically, I've I've stepped back a little bit from the business uh, while my body is still able to do some of the sport I want to play. Very wise. So when you're in the sort of really in the driving seat uh, and running the practice, tell us a little bit about your job and what it involved. And then we can get into some of the interesting uh, things that you did over that 30 year period. Well, sure. I mean, you know, it's a great privilege to be paid to do what you really enjoy. And that's what I've done for the last 30 years. So we work more Kingston Smith. We work with uh, in the media practice. We work with clients across the media and marketing spectrum. Uh, And really for them, my role was to work with them on their strategy for uh, driving the business forward. And then when they got to the point where they wanted to exit or fundraise on the way to buy, uh, to give them some advice around how best to do that. Um, And kind of just be an objective third party voice and ear uh, for owner managers. And are you mainly on the vendor side or were you working for bigger agencies or agency groups who are looking to buy as well? We're mainly on the vendor side. Um, and so when we're looking at fundraising for acquis- acquisition, it tends to be, not exclusively, but it tends to be for businesses who are growing, who want to make their own acquisitions in order to get to a size for critical mass where they can make an exit for themselves. And do you tend to find that, um, is, is it mainly sort of the agency side of the business or were you getting more involved in, in, in tech uh, as well? Uh, it's a bit of both. Uh, for me personally, it's mainly the agency side of the business, but for colleagues who specialise in technology, MarTech uh, is a big area for us. You know, So it's sort of the media and marketing world and the technology that sits underneath it. Yeah, yeah. So you were mainly involved in agency. So when did you do your first um, vendor sale type of deal then? That would be back in the 90s, I suppose. 
Um, well, yes. I mean, it, I, I, I moved across into our corporate finance team to set up the media arm uh, probably about 10 to 15 years ago now. Uh, and prior to that, um, you know, we were working with agency groups, really supporting them through the sale with the tax planning and dealing with the due diligence and things like that. And probably um, uh, probably one of the first was uh, probably Naked communication sale to Photon. Um, and then um, when we moved, when we set up the, the corporate finance media arm, the first thing we did was um, Adam and Eve sale. Right, to DDB. To DDB, yes, yeah. absolutely. Adam and Eve sell to DDB, where actually what we were doing there was we were helping them with the tax planning, but also doing uh, due diligence for them on DDB. Oh, right, right. Which was fascinating. And that would have been um, the early 2000s, I think, from memory? Yeah, or that's right. Mid, yeah? Yeah. And how, I suppose it's interesting just looking in, it, when we, you know, we read about the deals done in the in the press and you hear about them on the grapevine, how much work goes on prior to the actual deal being done in terms of getting an agency ready for a, a corporate sale or a corporate event like that? Well, there's a lot of... There's, I mean, you know, it's the nine-tenths of the iceberg, really. Um, so there's firstly getting getting an agency into shape to sell. Right. Um, and that, you know, that takes a programme, you know, of looking at all the key aspects that drive agency value and making sure that you've done your best to optimise those. And then when... Uh, agency owners decide to push the button in order to sell their business. Um, there's a lot of work in terms of capturing all of that in the uh, information memorandum, which is basically a sales prospectus, um, thinking about who the pool of buyers are and how best to position the agency. Because the, the secret source really in any um, strong acquisition is finding the buyer where the agency is the, like the missing piece in their jigsaw. Right. You know, um, and so if you can find that st sort of strategic fit, A, it works because you'll maximise the, the value of the agency because, it, it you know, it's most attractive to the buyer. But B, there's more in it for the agency because, you know, there's a strategic benefit to them. It's a genuine uh, two and two equals more than four because for, the age, for a really good buyer brings not just a big fat cheque, to the party they bring an opportunity for that agency to move through and grow in its sort of second incarnation if you like um, and and for that you know finding the strategic buyer is just vital although there is a view if you look at it and talk to people that although these deals always sound very nice in uh, you know the day they're done I think somebody said to me the other day that you if you're a seller you you love your buyer most on the day the deal is done and then after <laughs> that it goes downhill because there have been a few fallouts and comings apart and things not working out so what's the secret sauce on keeping it together once you've uh, arranged this marriage well uh working really hard it's just like a marriage or any sort of partnership it's working really hard at it um and you know buyers good buyers do that pretty well someone like i think next 15 does this very well for communications in the pr world right yes yes works very hard integrating their acquisitions uh into their organization so there are some great buyers out there and then there are some who say you know you're very important you're a key part in our journey uh and then they put their acquired business into the basement um both metaphorically and right. occasionally I've seen it physically and right. suddenly everybody's feeling a bit unimportant. So you've, you've got to know why the buyer has to know why they've bought this business and work hard to help them deliver and not put barriers in the way.
Right. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah, and it's diff- it's tough. I'm sure we're going to return to this because one of the things we do on our Dog and Bone podcast is ask people who know the guest, yourself, to send in some questions on audio clip. And uh, you'd be thrilled to know that we've, we've had several people respond um, when they found out that you were going to be my guest today. So the first question um, comes from a gentleman who, in fact, was a guest on the Dog and Bone earlier this year, the agency growth expert. Uh, Felix Valadi of 2Y3X. So let's have Felix's question, please. Hi, Mandy. It's Felix Valadi here at 2Y3X. What are the main discount factors buyers look for when evaluating an agency? And what can you do to offset them to create additional value? Well, that's that question. I, I don't particularly like the term discounting factors because it always sounds so you're sort of coming downwards, you know. As, uh, yeah. I always think from an agency point of view, you want to think of what are the premium factors, but it's a question of how you spin it. But you, yeah, how would you answer that question? Well, I mean, it's a very good question. It's actually a very common question. Like you, I prefer to look at it on the positive side. But I think, you know, buyers are looking to de-risk. So they want to see in an agency things that reduce the level of risk that they perceive. So they want uh, to know that there's not over-dependence on any one client. And if they discover that, you know, 80% of the business is tied up with client X, that's a massive discount factor. You know, we'd always advise that one client represents no more than about 20% of your business, ideally. Um, and I think the other thing is over-reliance on the founders is a real issue. So you want to have uh, the founders have passed the business on in terms of management to the management team. And a good, strong, ambitious management team with entrepreneurial spirit, I think, is very important. Um, and I think... You know, one of the other things is um, whether there are any lurking problems. So if there's any, uh, in terms of discount factors, when one does due diligence as an acquirer on a business, if you discover there's pending legal action or there's, um, you know, some sort of employment dispute or something like that, you know, managing that before you get into the negotiations by disclosing it and explaining what you've done about it um, is very important. Do you find that you approach that from a point of view of just having that kind of knowledge in your head or is there like a formula that you literally go through, like a scorecard um, when you're advising clients? Um, well, funnily enough, yes, we, we've got some, we've got a process we run through which we call the um, Enterprise Value 10 and it's 10 key areas of the business that uh, we think you need to focus on to get right to drive enterprise value. And I've talked about... Um, a couple of them one is you know the client mix so you ideally want no dependence on one client and long-term relationships so retainers are better than project work long retainers are better than short retainers Um, that you know that it's all about risk and security of income going forward Um, and income and that's the second thing is income security and quality so is it lower level advice or is it strategic advice where the client comes to you for you know proper consultation i think our next question will probably enable you to sort of unpack that a little bit more because um we've actually got a question on a similar theme from joe evans at lewis silkin my name is joe evans i'm a corporate and m a partner at law firm at lewis silkin um, my question for you mandy um, is this you will have advised on many many uh, m a deals in the industry over the last 30 years acting for both buyers and sellers and investors, what would you say are the key ingredients for a successful outcome of a transaction for all parties? And what does a successful outcome look like? 
And what are those red flags that when they arise during a process gives you the feeling that this might end badly? And do you think those have changed over time? Thanks. Quite a few questions there. We leave aside the um, change over time for now, but but focusing on the, the thrust of Joe's question about the key ingredients and how you see the red flags, when you see the red flags. Well, I think the key ingredients actually I've slightly talked about earlier, which is a great strategic fit. If you can find that, um, then I think uh, you're, you're, you know, you're on, on your way to a good outcome as it is. And then I think um, some of the things that I was talking about earlier, like you know, if, if, the, if the selling company's got you know, strength across clients, income, value proposition, uh, their processes, no owner reliance, strong management team, good management information, good governance, great profit performance, um, then, you know, that's, that's going to help drive success. I think, um, you know, when we look at valuations, we look at valuations between a willing buyer and a willing seller. And when you're looking at a sale, you look at a willing buyer and a willing seller. And it's that will to work together. Typically, uh, transaction, transactions are more successful when the, the, the buyer is experienced, they know what they're doing, and they're flexible and confident. Um, and I think if the seller is well advised, and I'd always, I probably would say this, wouldn't I, but I'd always advise a seller to take on professional advice because, you know, you do it once, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, you know, we've done it hundreds and hundreds of times, um, it's being realistic. It's not getting hung up on minor points of principle. Um, and I think, you know, you start to sort of see doom happening when, you're, when, you, when the buyer and the seller are arguing about just small stuff in the margins and they're not being flexible. They're not seeing the bigger picture. They're not trying to work together to find a way through it and they're getting sort of stuck in entrenched positions and negotiating positions. Um, also, I think, you know, some of the red flags, you know, some of the things that can really derail a deal is if the vendor isn't ready. And it can be little stuff like um, during, the, during the course of a deal, um, you know, which could last a few months during negotiations and due diligence, the buyer will be asking for updated financial information. And if it's taking weeks to turn that around, the buyer will begin to think, oh, my goodness, you know, what's under the bonnet that we can't see that they're trying to cover up while they take forever to get us, get, get, get us this information? And eventually, um, you know, they, they can even get, and I know this sounds a terrible thing, they just get bored of this transaction process because it's too damn hard and they move on to another one. Because in point of fact, buyers if they're serious about filling a gap in their portfolio of skill sets or client areas, we'll be talking to more than one. And right. they will have picked the one that they've gone into exclusivity with because they're the best one, but they probably won't be the only one. So keeping the process smooth, and this is where, you know, working with, you know, experienced corporate lawyers, experienced corporate finance advisors um, can be so important. But is there an element there that the the vendor, which is almost certainly be like a, an owner owner managed business, so it'd be some personal group that's built up an agency, be looking to sell, are they perhaps understandably overly emotionally wedded to the way they've done things before, and that makes them a little bit less keen to give ground? Whereas if they were just a 
a steward of an of an existing asset, they could put those things t- to one side. I mean, I'm also thinking about the name of the agency because there must be a lot of negotiation about what name mm. the acquired agency emerges, whether it has all the letters of the uh, new owning agency stuck on the front or the end. <laughs> Has that been part of it in your experience? Oh, well, yes. I mean, the name, well, just picking up the name point, mm. that's a really emotive issue. Uh, and you, it has led in the past to the longest set of agency initials in the world. Um, I thought, I, I can't remember who it was, Simons Palmer su- sold to its SP. Simons Palmer, Denton, Clemo, Johnson, you, you, uh, then gazillions of initials yes, after that. Yes, rings a bell, yeah. lots of initials. Yeah. And I know you were involved in, uh, we'll talk in a minute, but I'm sure we'll come up, but uh, Re- Rainey, Kelly, Campbell, Rolf, and that yeah. joined with Young and Rubicam, Y&R, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Adam and Eve, DDB. Yeah, exactly. So I think the name, I mean, and sometimes, you know, the name is important. If you look at the sale of Adam and Eve to DDB, Adam and Eve you know, were the hot kids on the street, why would you lose that brand? Right. It would be mad. Um, And I think buyers need to respect that. Um, But at the same time, you know, uh, founders, and it's a tough one because it's their baby and they're handing over to some new parents, you need to let the new parents get on with it. And I think at the end of the day, as long as what you do is commercially sensible, um, as opposed to emotionally driven that's that that should be the winner but it's tough and that's that's where you know good advice and that you trust from someone you trust comes in good advice clearly is is important but i suppose it's the person taking the advice has to have a i don't know a switch of mindset from running the show to taking a back yeah. back seat and i can see that's uh well it maybe can, the biggest challenge yeah it can be i mean often um you know, a buyer will want the person who's running the show to carry on running the show for a bit. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a, a sort of period of handover, which can be very helpful. Yes, the so-called earn-out period. Yeah. 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 Well, um, I suppose in terms of some detail, it'd be interesting to uh, unpack a bit about some of the deals you've actually been involved in. And I think this might uh, be picked up on our next question, which is from Pete Reed of MSQ. Hi, it's Pete Reed, CEO of MSQ Partners, the creative and tech company. And my question to Mandy is, what is the most complicated deal you've been involved in and why? Yeah, that's 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 a really interesting question. The most complicated deal uh, I was ever involved with, it, with was the sale of Naked Communications to Photon. Uh, Photon was an Australian-listed group, uh, and uh, I can't remember precisely the year, but it was in the 2000s, early 2000s. And the founder, or the fa- yeah, the founder of Photon, a chap called Tim Hughes, was renowned for um, taking a company he wanted to buy out to dinner, and writing the offer on the paper napkin for them to take away, which was a bit of a showman's trick. And, mm. and um, ultimately, of course, Photon overstretched themselves and, and uh, you know built up too much debt, which uh, ultimately meant that they couldn't service all the sales. But but at the time, this was in the early days of Photon's acquisition journey. And at the time, Naked had eight subsidiaries around the world, all of which had some shares owned by some of the local management, none of which had um, sale and purchase agreements in place. Right. So at the time of the sale, they were having to negotiate and deal with the tax implications of eight subsidiary company negotiations while also negotiating to sell um, 
the Topco shares to uh, Photon. And Naked, we should say, were really hot kind of media advisory yeah. business that sort of found a moment um, in that early kind of noughties period. Yeah, absolutely. And they were they were famous for the uh, 118118 campaign with mustachioed short-wearing mm-hmm. individuals popping up in tubes yeah. around London and so on and so forth. Uh, and the um, finance director, a chap called Barry Dudley, uh, was um, yeah really had his work cut out, and we were supporting supporting him. In point of fact, one of my tax partners, Tim Stovold, at Moore Kingston Smith, went round and sat with Barry, going through some of the tax issues um, on a on a weekly basis to try and get that done. But that I mean, it was a really interesting, and it was a great deal. But it came unstuck because just for the uninitiated, Photon couldn't generate enough revenue from their acquisitions to fund the payouts that they'd agreed to yeah. to do. Yeah, I mean, basically, they uh, and there was an interview with Tim Hughes, kind of talking through this in uh, one of the media press. Uh, they overextended themselves in terms of the debt they took on, and the, the acquisitions they'd made didn't generate enough cash to service it. Uh, and which led then to um, some of their acquisitions buying themselves out subsequently. I noticed in his question, Peter referred to his own company, MSQ Partners, uh, and uh, as as agency and tech. Uh, I'd be interested to get your view on this, because I, I think there's a perception that agencies need a bit of tech to kind of protect their valuations uh, and be more of the moment than a people-only business. But what's your perception of that? I, I think it's uh, this is very an accountancy answer. It depends. Um, you know, if the tech better enables the delivery of client services and makes their business more scalable, uh, then yes, absolutely. But tech for tech's sake, um, you know, does McKinsey need tech to deliver its high level consultancy advice? No, I don't think it does. Uh, you know, it might use technology in order to enable some of the processes within the business, but then. Um, I think that's a different thing. So I think it's horses for courses. So I think if one is uh, giving, you know, board-level consultancy advice, whether that's as a public relations business or a a media business, um, then I don't think that needs to be technology-enabled. Right. Even though the tech multiples are greater than the people business multiples. So if you had some tech in your agency outlook, you you feel possibly as a as a as a owner that you can push the multiple up but you're saying you're taking that with a pinch of salt really it seems I think to me. a little bit of a pinch of salt i mean yes if you are a pure tech business and you've got um you know it, it you see the valuations are all based on scalability um and indeed market sentiment look at the change in price of um Oh, the video software that we all suddenly started using zoom, zoom. yeah look at the change in price of zoom yeah. now we're post pandemic it's come back down uh, you know, to to kind of relatively normal valuations. Yes. So it's still being used, but the, we can't really see that it's going to grow much no, more this it, time around. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's all about scalability. So if you've got the sort of software that, you know, just by getting more subscribers and users, you can scale at a vast rate, then yeah, that sure, that, that gives right, you a tech right. valuation. If you've got software that uh, enables uh, an, an element of automation and technology in your business... It might enhance the value, but not necessarily. Right, yeah, because it, it won't scale it as of itself beyond mm. how you use it for your existing yeah. human-based clients. Yeah, yeah, no, I see the distinction. We have another question getting somewhat more... We're getting more specific with one or two things coming up now. Um, 
The next question is from uh, a guy called Nick Glover, who's the founder and uh, joint CEO, I think, of the Territory Studios production group. When hiring CFO, what are the critical questions you need to ask yourself to ensure best fit? Is it culture, uh, technical capability, sector experience, a combination of all of those? Are there priorities within those? Do those priorities depend or differ on the type of business and sector? Where have you seen the most effective or impressive CFOs and why? quite a lot of detail in there but yeah choosing a CFO what advice would you give well I think technical capability ought to come as a given I think that's almost a hygiene factor that a CFO uh, understands accounts and understands how to put in place systems and processes to deliver um, appropriate and accurate management information Um, and so I think once you've established that that is there, then after that, actually, I think the best CFOs uh, know how to communicate what the numbers mean um, and what the underlying causes of the numbers are and understand those and give the board appropriate advice about what to do do about it. Um, and to do that, I think you have to be uh, a good communicator and, and slightly buck the traditional image of an accountant as a slightly introverted character. Right. Um, I think you have to have a good commercial brain on you and enough, you know, enough years under your belt to have seen a few things. Um, so, you know, when I think of really strong CFOs, um, you know, I've met so many over the years. Peter, Peter Walker, who's now managing director at um, CHI, uh, is a great CFO. Robin Price, um, who for years was at McCann's and at What If, great CFO. And what makes them stand out, uh, and of course many, many more, uh, what makes them stand out is that, you know, they they think about the implication of the numbers for the business and what to do about them. So in a way, actually, finance director is a better term because you're directing the financial direction of the business and it's it's more of a, it's a commercial outlook. So, you know, is industry experience important? It's important, I think, but it's not vital. But I think you do need to understand how to bring and bring people in a creative industry with you. So you need quite good human skills. Is that a bit of a shock for some CFOs or finance directors if they change sector coming into advertising and all that kind of softer skills people thing? And, you know, do you really need to spend that on can every year and that sort of thing? <laughs> how does that go down? Yeah, I think it can be. I really think it can be. Um, but, you know... Our sector's such fun that I think the joy must overcome any stress from having to pay for people to go to Cannes or on the Oriana <laughs> as it used to be in the day for the conferences, the and, conferences yeah. and so on and so forth. And, and these people, obviously, they're very good, and you mentioned a few names. They, they don't come cheap. So is there a model where you, if you can't have somebody full-time on the business all the time, is the part-time CFO or the portfolio CFO... A good idea or does that mean they're spread too thinly to uh, really do a good job for uh, an agency on the move I know I think it's a great solution for a you know for a young agency or an agency that's trying to put in place some processes um, you know that it needs for its next iteration if you like um, I think it's a really good solution as long as you've got somebody in the engine room who's producing accurate information 
um, then having a good CFO come in part-time, understand that information and guide the board off the back of it, I think is a really good solution. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network. Subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. And if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. Um, we have, a, I think it's probably the final audio question um, from somebody I know that you know and have worked with for many years. And that's um, a very well-known lady called M.T. Rainey. Hi, Mandy. It's M.T. Rainey here. Uh, we've known each other a long time, about 30 years, right back to when you helped us grow and sell Rainey Kelly Campbell Rolfe. And then again, we worked together last year when you helped me support another agency that I'm advising. So it occurs to me that's quite a big time lapse in the industry. And my question to you is what are the key differences now in between now and then in how value is created in agencies in that time frame? Interesting one. The sort of changes that you've seen really over those two bookends in your career, Mandy. Well, it's... Uh... Yeah, it's a really it's a really good question and um i think there is the fundamentals really haven't changed i think a good a great agency then is had all the same fundamentals a great proposition a strong team you know a good client mix all those good things um you know rainy kelly was was great because their proposition when they launched was um that actually clients weren't paying for um, them to deliver hours. Clients were paying for them to deliver a great brand idea. And one of the things that the, the, the creatives um, had come up with in a prior organisation for Volvo was Cages Save Lives, which stayed, you know, forever as a, as a brand proposition. And it encapsulated the fact that Volvos were built this way and they were incredibly safe. Um, and Rainy Kelly at Campbell Rolfe. Rainy Kelly Campbell Rolfe. Full, name, Rolf, full M- name. And the Rainy is, of course, M.T. Rainy, the yes, lady indeed. just asked the question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they, they've developed a system of charging separately for the big idea. Right. Because ultimately, that's what they were selling. They weren't selling time, and it didn't matter uh, if the guys came up with that in five minutes or five days. That was the big idea. Right. And so I think finding a proposition that distinguishes an agency from its peers in that way um, is still really, really highly relevant. It's got harder, I think, because the media landscape has got more complex. You've got, you know, more sub-disciplines, more sub-experts happening. And so finding a way to distinguish an agency or, you know, any business in the media sector is more complicated. And actually, you know... I think is less well done, perhaps, by some. So some, you know, quite often we I look at a lot of websites of agencies as part of my work, whether that's looking at them in terms of trawling through potential buyers or looking at them because, um, you know, we're assessing competitors for an, a- an existing agency. And it's sometimes it's a bit like when you mix different colours of plasticine together and everything's gone brown. And you look at them and you think, well, I know you're creative. I know you're telling me you're telling stories. But you know what? I don't actually know what you do and what you'll do for me. Um, so I think there is a lot of, dare I say it, 
mediocrity, which means that if you can find a way to stand out by having a specific client base or a specific um, point of difference, it really, really helps. Um, so I think, I think, and I think maybe that the the breadth of landscape having got more complex has potentially made that a little bit harder. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, I, I get exactly what you mean. I love your comment about so much colours of plasticine that everything's gone brown. We all see websites that say, you know, we help companies find themselves and grow, and you don't know whether they're a training company or a software company or an M&A company or an accountancy firm because uh, whoever yeah. wrote the website just sees it in terms of, oh, we help our clients grow. Well, of course, you know, but how? Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, it's a very good point, yeah. So coming sort of up to date then, um, what do you see, What would you put your finger on as a specific, I don't know, change or missing ingredient? You've said differentiation is harder. What about the expectations of, of value, say? Has that changed over 30 years? Do, 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 do founders expect more or less? I mean, I've mentioned the tech point and you've, you've, you've dealt with that, but uh, what are founders sort of coming to the table with and how has that changed? Back in those days, people set up agencies with a view to selling them or they set up agencies with a view to owning them. And I still think to a degree that's the case. So you look back at um, Rainy Kelly, Campbell Rolfe, they set up and with a great proposition, a great idea, and got approached. And I think they, they sold after about five years from memory. Simons, Palmer, Denton, Clemmer and Johnson with the many initials I spoke yeah. of earlier, you know, they sold, I think, uh, after under ten after less than 10 years. Um, and, you know, were either of them set up with a view to making a quick buck? No. But some agencies now will come in and say, you know, our business plan is that we want to set up and we want to sell in year seven. Right, so it's in the plan. It's in the plan. And I think that is more prevalent now. Um, and I think potentially... Um, it makes actually for a less good agency because instead of entrepreneurially following opportunities, you stick quite rigidly to the plan and it can produce a bit of a blinkered approach to some stuff. Of course, it works brilliantly for some, I guess. Um, but I think, you know, what makes what makes a great agency for somebody else to buy also makes a great agency to own. So it's kicking off profit, it's got secure income, it's got a strong team, it's got a, a strong vision about where it's going, it's got a strong proposition, it's bringing on clients, it's a, it's a happy growing place. Yes. And, you know, you can either own that or you can sell it, but it's, it's good either way. So getting an agency ready for sale is actually just good for the agency anyway, yeah. sale or not. I should mention that um, you, you, we talked about Rainey, Kelly, Campbell, Rolfe and their sale to Young and Rubicum YNR. Um, it, it's now, it's eventually metamorphosed into VML YNR, mm. which is a, a client of uh, my agency, Propeller, so just for transparency. But you mentioned the, the two other names at the end there, um, Campbell and Rolfe. I think they were the creatives, and I think Mark Rolfe was notable because I think he was the last of that generation to still have his name linked yeah. on an agency because even when it was um, uh, RKCR, YNR, up to mm. a few years ago, it still had that. He was still in the agency and had his name on the on the door, and there weren't many of that generation that did. So, um, actually, I, I've just got a quick quick story about yeah, that. If that's go, all right, go for it. So, um, we helped Duckworth and Grub Waters set up many years ago. Another great um, name, Pond Life, Duckworth Finn Grub, Grub Waters. Waters yeah. Yes. 
all lovely, talented guys, but they always got called Duckworth Finn. And Dave Waters, and they had pencils in their boardrooms that said Duckworth Finn Grub Waters, and he got so fed up for it with it one day, he brought one of those um, electronic pencil sharpeners, and he sharpened every pencil down so it just said Waters on it. <laughs> so he sharpened them all down he got to the last name that's a great yeah, story yeah. that's a great story particularly as pencils play such a great role in creativity because of the uh, um, the DNA D pencils so the final question from listeners is actually one I'm going to read out which is from Clive Michon who's the founder director of the Alliance of Independent Agencies and he says they are seeing more discussions about EOTs employer ownership trusts as a sustainable business model for independent agencies putting purpose ahead of profit. Um, As retaining agency talent is key, will the EOT be more prevalent in future rather than just flogging it on, by which I suppose he means a commercial sale? Uh, Well, you know, EOTs are a growing vehicle, um, employee ownership trusts for buying out founders. Um, Ardman Animations, founders sold sold to an EOT. uh, And... You know, there are huge tax advantages because the founders don't pay any tax as long as the EOT owns at least 51% of the business. Uh, Ultimately, whatever price the EOT pays the shares, ultimately the business is the engine that's going to drive the profits, that's going to produce the cash, that's going to pay out the founders. And so founders who don't take all their money up front when they sell out to an EOT need to be comfortable that either they're still involved in the business to help drive it or that the management team who are buying them out using an EOT have got sufficient entrepreneurial drive and skill to deliver the results in order to service the debt to the founders one way or another. Um, but they are prevalent. I mean, at more Kingston Smith, we must have, in, in you know, in the, in the media sector, we must have advised on between a dozen and 20 over the last two or three years um, and um, you know to good effect and, and with happy results although I was talking to Joe Evans of Lewis Silken the other day and she'd just finished completing the sale of an EOT and she said it is one of the most complex things she's ever done but it's possible Right, yeah. I think Clive's point also, particularly in the light of uh, shortage of great talent in the kind of marketing services sector uh, and recruitment challenges whether the EOT is a signal for staff that you're trying to retain or indeed recruit that this is a place where they can have some ownership and I think you know don't have to dwell on it now but the battleground will be whether that is enough to kind of retain and recruit or whether you can ever beat just a bit of extra cash in your salary at the end of the month and for middle managers that will always be more important than having a you know a percentage in something at the end of the day that that debate I think will go on uh, I think it will go on. I think um, it. I think actually it will be a very attractive ge- to Gen Z. The ownership aspect. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I think feeling that they're part of something and they can have some sort of influence on it doing its part in the world. Yes, I think that's important. a very good point. That's what Clive is probably playing at. That playing point is playing too. Is that uh, you're absolutely right that uh, we're at a moment or a time when that kind of a generation would feel that they want to have a stake in what they're building rather than just working for the man or the woman, whoever it might be. Yeah, no, I think so. 
Well, look, we've um, we've been talking for already uh, 40, 45 minutes. Time's flown by. I've got a kind of a serious question for you, then we'll end up with the traditional dog and bone, lighter-hearted question. But my, my last sort of serious question, which is more about kind of how you deliver the job, how, how do you get paid? You know, do you have a... Is it a day rate or are you on a success fee? You mentioned the big idea, you know, for agencies having the big idea. How does somebody in your position, Mandy, get remunerated for the advice you give agencies? Uh, Well, when we're working on a transaction, generally speaking, we uh, take a low sort of um, project fee for getting the business, for producing the documents I talked about earlier, the information memorandum and researching the clients who are, sorry, the acquirers um, and then we have a success fee so we try to be goal aligned with what our um, clients are doing so that the better they do the better we do um, so the bigger part is the success fee and we might be talking I mean you, you can you share five percent four percent ten percent five percent would be industry norm but you know it it varies so we you know we might say look we think an ordinary price for you is 10 million we'll take three percent up to 10 million and we'll take seven percent of anything over 10 for example and it might benefiting the vendor yeah yeah Yeah. right and then the first fee for the memorandum give our listeners a a guide what are we 10 20 30 grand or more than that well it depends i mean it depends on how much work and how complex the the business you're selling is of course but you know probably 10 to 30 depending but then your advice as a very seasoned um, and experienced operator, uh, it's hard to quantify on a sort of hourly scale. This goes back to me to that kind of big idea that you mm. were talking about with the agency, Rainey, Kelly, Campbell, Rolf. Do you, do you have a sort of Mandy's big idea special rate? <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, no. <laughs> <laughs> Getting a bit late in the day to introduce that with yeah. the changes. So, yeah, we close on our... Uh, a traditional fun question because we talk seriously about business and and all the work you do but um everyone who comes on the podcast has got at least one incident in their career so i have to ask you what's your most embarrassing moment in your business career uh well my most embarrassing moment many years ago now is uh, a client of mine who uh phoned up to explain that uh he'd been making some payments to a consultant uh, and she was helping him with his erectile dysfunction. Ooh. And would the uh, payments to that consultant, which he'd characterised as uh, potentially gifts, be tax deductible for him or taxable on her? I have to say, it's a question I'd never come across before. Uh, and um, I had to trot off to my head of tax and have a have a further embarrassing conversation to, to work out what the answer was. Um and what we decided it was a gift. I suppose people often say I'm doing some training or I'm going on a course, but uh, that particular topic isn't isn't no, normally it a, included. It was a new one for me. Yeah. Well, listen. On that note, I think it's a good note to uh, to end. Uh, Mandy Merrin, thank you so much for joining me on the Dog and Bone podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast, and if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog. Or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog. Thanks for joining us on the Dog...